exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. C.S. Lewis once said, If I find in my, myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Many of you know that when my wife and I got married, we went on our honeymoon and then immediately moved from Kansas City, Missouri to Tampa, Florida to take care of my 94-year-old grandmother full-time. And I'm really thankful for that time that I got to spend with her in her final days. But it was a hard experience because of two of the hardest things about that experience were, number one, we were living in someone else's house. So we couldn't put our personal touch on the place we lived. And we'd have relatives not ask us, but tell us, hey, get ready. We're coming to visit Graham in two weeks. And, you know, we were there to serve my grandmother. So we dealt with it. But it was weird because we never really felt like home there. And the second hardest thing about our time there was that we knew that the second my grandmother died, we had to find a new place to live. And so those two factors combined just constantly reminded me this is not your home. And living in that kind of environment just created a yearning in my heart for a home that was permanent. And so when my grandmother did pass away, we did everything in our power to find a place we could belong, a place we could put down roots that we could call home. And as, as soon as we came here, we slowly began to, to build a home and to buy furniture and to put our own personal touch on the parsonage and this home, uh, uh, this house eventually became a place that we could call home. And I absolutely love my life right now. I love where we live. I love the people that I'm around. I love what I'm doing. But even with all that being said, there is still a voice in the back of my head that says, this is not going to last forever. As human beings, we only get a little while on this planet and then we pass on. There's nothing in this world that's truly permanent. And for every person made in the image of God, there is a longing within our souls for a place beyond this world. A longing for a world that has not been corrupted by sin and suffering and death. We all have within us a yearning in our hearts for our true home. And in John 13 and 14, Jesus shows us the way home. And my prayer for you is that you would be able to satisfy that longing for a place beyond this world. If you don't have a Bible, or if you haven't already, please turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible, there should be some in the pews around you. Um, and you can turn to page 1070. We've been studying the Gospel of John since last July. And Lord willing, we'll be finishing this upcoming November I've been enjoying the journey, and I hope you have been too. So we'll be picking up in John chapter 13, verse 36. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to give us three truths about heaven. Three truths about heaven. First, he's going to tell us that heaven is the eternal, infinite home of God's children. We're going to find that in John 13, verse 36, into chapter 14, verse 3. Second, he's going to tell us that he's the only way to heaven. And I'm sure that won't be controversial at all. We're going to find that in verses 4 through 7. And finally, he's going to tell us that you can trust what he says about heaven because 
Jesus is one with the Father. We'll find that in verses 8 through 11. Heaven is the eternal, infinite home of God's children. Jesus is the only way there, and you can believe what Jesus said because he is one with the Father. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And as I speak, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look with me to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Stop right there. Jesus has just told his disciples, number one, that he was about to be betrayed. And number two, he's about to leave them. And Peter is having trouble taking in the news. When these disciples followed Jesus, it wasn't just like a summer vacation. They left everything. Back in the day, whatever your father did, that's what you did. It wasn't like you can go to school and train to become a carpenter. No, you went into the family business. And these disciples walked away from their livelihoods to follow this rabbi. Probably because they expected him to become the new king in Israel. They were expecting a physical kingdom right now. And because they had followed Jesus, they're probably expecting to be pretty high up in the chain of command. But now... Jesus is leaving them right at the hour when they thought Jesus was going to go to the capital and kick out all the Roman occupiers. But now Jesus tells them that when he leaves, they're also not going with him. So in verses 37 through 38, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter probably meant what he said. If Jesus had gone to storm the Capitol and to stage an insurrection, I expect that Peter would have been by his side, sword in hand. And later we'll see that when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter does pull out his sword and even cuts off a guy's ear. And maybe Peter was thinking about these words and wanted to prove himself that he was willing to die for Jesus But instead of congratulating Peter for his bravery, Jesus tells Peter to put away the sword. He heals the man's ear, and then he goes away willingly to be crucified. And as Peter's expectations are shattered, that's when he denies his Messiah. Not once, not twice, but three times. But Peter's denial was no surprise to Jesus, and that's why he tells him this right here. I will say, however, it was quite a surprise both to Peter and the other disciples. So that's why Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going to be betrayed by someone in this room. That he was going away. That they could not follow him. And now he just told them that Peter, of all people, is going to deny him. And if you were in that upper room the night of the Passover, your heart would have been troubled. And even though Jesus was about to be slaughtered, even though Jesus was about to experience the worst day anyone had ever experienced, notice where where Jesus' concern is. He's worried about his disciples. He's focused on comforting them. Like a father who has six months to live and is going through chemotherapy, he still cares for his child who has scraped his knee and is crying. 
So Jesus begins to comfort his disciples with these words in verse one. Believe in God, believe also in me. It's not surprising that Jesus tells his disciples to believe in God, but it is surprising that Jesus tells his disciples to believe in him in the same way that they were supposed to believe in the God in the heavens. And now Jesus is calling them to believe in the God who is in their midst. Jesus is making himself equal with God in this statement. And if you don't believe me, just wait a minute because we'll see even more claims from him. Why does belief in the Father and the Son bring true peace? Well, look with me to verses 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. In the Old Testament, we only get a tiny picture of what heaven will be like. Some people in the Old Testament, like David and Job, seem to wonder at times if there even is an afterlife. They say things like, Lord, who knows what happens to the spirit of man after he is no more? But here Jesus gives his disciples a picture and a promise of heaven. And we get these four descriptions of heaven in these short two verses. He tells us that heaven is a home, it's eternal, it's infinite, and it's a place for God's children. And that's why the first promise about heaven is that Jesus, uh, that heaven is the eternal, infinite home of God's children. So let's, let's take that first point and let's take it piece by piece. First, heaven is a home. In verse 2, Jesus calls it my father's house. There's nowhere you belong more than at your own home and with your own family. But once again, I want you to think about how temporary all of your homes are. I know that my house will never be my ultimate home. And even if you were born in your house and you have lived there all your life and you have inherited that from your family and you're going to die there, that home is still temporary. But our father's house is an eternal home that our hearts are longing for. And that's the second description of heaven, that heaven is eternal. Jesus doesn't call it my father's hotel. You're not just staying there a night or two. It's not temporary lodging. It's a place of permanent residence or our eternal home. You probably heard the old King James Version, which says, in my father's house are many mansions. Now, mansion is a good word, but I think rooms is a better picture for what Jesus was trying to communicate here. Because the word that is translated rooms or mansion literally means a dwelling place. The focus here is not on the beauty of heaven or the extravagance of our dwelling places, but on the amount of dwelling places available. That's why our dwelling places, there is an infinite amount. There's an infinite uh, space. Uh, By saying there's many rooms, he's saying that there's enough room in heaven for his disciples. There is never a no vacancy sign on the gates of heaven. Jesus is saying, if there wasn't an infinite amount of space available in heaven then I would not have told you I go to prepare a place for you. How is Jesus going to prepare a place for them? Well, I don't think that means that he's been hammering away for the last 2,000 years. It's not like he really fell in love with carpentry here on earth and he didn't want to let that talent go to waste. No, I think what Jesus is saying here when he's going away, I don't think he means he's going to heaven. I think he means he's going to the cross. 
Remember, this is the night he's about to be betrayed. Tomorrow he's going to the cross and by dying in the place of sinners, he's going to prepare a place for every man, woman, and child who trusts in his sacrifice. You see, there is an infinite gap between God and man because of our sin. God created human beings in his image and he made mankind good. And in the Garden of Eden, man's home was with God. But when man rebelled against God, man was kicked out of his home and sin was introduced into the world so that human beings are not born children of God. But the Bible actually says that we are born children of wrath and destruction. We're born spiritual orphans in this world without a family, without a home, and we have behaved like it. We've broken his commandments every day of our lives, and no one can go and live in the Father's house and be with God in heaven if their sins have not been forgiven and they're not a part of God's family. Just think about your own life and how you've lived. Last week, Jesus told us, love one another as he has loved us. But how often have you failed to love others? How often have you been selfish? How often have you been self-centered? How often have you hurt others? How often have you even gossiped about people behind their backs? How often have you been nice to someone only because of what they could do for you? Not out of a spirit of love. We have all fallen short and we have all failed to love others as we should. And one day... We're going to face God as our judge, and he will punish all who have failed and sinned against him. And that's terrible news, because that's all of us. But the good news is that God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus to prepare a place for us. He lived an absolutely perfect life and loved everyone he came across perfectly, never sinning. And then he went to the cross to die in our place to take our punishment. And to suffer the wrath of God owed towards sinners. And he died there on that piece of wood. But he rose from the grave, proving that he really was God. Proving that the Father had accepted his sacrifice. And proving that he did indeed prepare a place for all who would believe. Amen? Because listen, if you repent of your sins today and put your trust in Jesus, you will be adopted into God's family. No longer will God be your judge, but your father and heaven will now be your father's house. And here's the best part about that news. You'll be with Jesus. And that's the fourth description of heaven. It's a place for God's children. God has only one natural born son. The rest are adopted, but heaven is the eternal infinite home for all of them. Jesus tells his disciples in verse three, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now I'll tell you, scholars are totally divided on what Jesus means when he says he'll come again. Some think that he means after the resurrection. Some think he means whenever a believer dies. Some think that Jesus means at the end of time. So whichever one you you pick, all of those are true in one sense or another. I think Jesus is being vague here. This much is clear from this verse. When he comes, we will be with him. That is the best part of heaven, that Jesus will be there. People today want heaven for a lot of reasons. They want heaven because it beats the alternative. They want heaven because they'll get to see lost loved ones. They want heaven because there'll be no more pain. They want heaven because there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow. 
No more death. And listen to me, church. These are all good things. They're glorious things. All of them are coming, but all of them pale in comparison to being with Jesus, our Savior and our King. When my old pastor, Ronnie Kurtz, was preaching on this passage, he said, if we get all of these things for all eternity and have not Christ, we have nothing. Our eternity will be spent marveling at the giver, not just marveling at the gifts. One day our faith will be sight and we'll see him. And in that moment, we'll be more sure than ever that he is our only treasure, end quote. Heaven is the eternal, infinite home of God's children. That's the first promise about heaven. But that raises the question, how then do we get there? And the answer is in the second promise about heaven. The only way is Jesus. Look with me to verses four and five. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thank the Lord for Thomas the Apostle. Finally, we have someone who is asking the question that's been in the back of all the disciples' minds. They don't know Jesus is talking about heaven. So Thomas steps up and finally says, Lord, you're always speaking in parables and riddles. Of course we have no idea what you're talking about. How can we know the way if we don't even know where you're going? And I'm so glad Thomas asked that question because in Jesus' response, we get one of the most incredible verses in all of Scripture. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In verse 6, we find the sixth I am statement of Jesus in this gospel. Throughout our study of the gospel of John, we've heard Jesus use this phrase, I am over and over and over again. And if you know your Bible, you know that the phrase I am is actually a title that God uses for himself. Way back in Exodus 3, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses asked God, what's your name? And God replied, I am who I am. Tell the people that I am has sent you. And here Jesus uses the title for himself, implying what? That he is the great I am of Exodus. In John's gospel, Jesus has already told us, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. But in John 14, Jesus tells us, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth because he is the source of all truth. And he is the life because he is the source of all life. And he is the way because he is the only way to the Father. Notice that Jesus does not say, I am a way and a truth and a life. No, no, no. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, meaning no other. That's why Jesus even makes it crystal clear for anyone who might have questions by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, Jesus is not just our great example that we must follow. And if we imitate his life well enough and we do a good enough job, then we'll get to heaven. No, Jesus is not showing us the way to live. He's saying he is the way. And this verse was so important to us as Christians that when the first church began to grow in the book of Acts, you know what they were called? The way, the followers of the way. Now, this verse was controversial when the church first began, and it's incredibly controversial today. 
In the Western world, it's great to believe in Jesus as long as you don't believe he is the only way. In our culture, it's seen as arrogant to say that you're right and everybody else is wrong. And I'll admit that's pretty arrogant. But here's the thing. We are not saying we are right and everybody else is wrong. Jesus is. He is the one making the claim to be the way. And you may be wondering, who does Jesus think he is to say such a thing? And that's a great question. That leads us to the third promise about heaven. You can trust what Jesus said about heaven because he is one with the Father. Look with me to verses seven through nine. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Back in John 8, 58, Jesus told us before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because he was claiming to be God. In John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And once again, the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him because he was claiming to be God. And if the Pharisees were in the room right now, I'd be betting that they'd have stones in hand ready to throw. We've heard from the first verse of this book. In the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Where did John get a crazy idea like that? Well, it seems like he got it from Jesus himself. Jesus starts off by telling his disciples that they know the Father because they know him, but they're not getting it. So this time it's Philip who asked the question and he asked to see the Father and Jesus tells him, you've seen the Father because you've seen me. Who does Jesus think he is? Well, he's telling us that he thinks he's God. He's claiming to be one with the Father. This is what we as Christians call the Trinity, meaning that there is only one God who exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you don't understand that, join the club. If you don't understand the Trinity, you know what that means? You're a human being. God is the creator and you are the creature. Imagine for a moment you were given the task to explain to an ant how computers work. The task is virtually impossible because the difference between human beings and ants is so large that the only way you can communicate to an ant what computers were and how they operated is if you became an ant. And even then, you would be severely limited by the ant's ability to communicate in its little ant language. Now, the difference between human beings and God is infinitely bigger than between human beings and ants. And here Jesus, the divine second person of the Trinity, who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten of the Father, not made, one in essence with the Father, through him all things were made. And in this passage, Jesus is communicating to us what his relationship is like with the Father. And it's complicated. But here's the main point. Jesus is saying that he is so united in essence with the Father that to see Jesus is to see the Father. Jesus is claiming to be God. And let me tell you, anyone can claim to be God. I've met two different homeless men on two different occasions who both claim to be God. And let me tell you, I did not take them seriously for one moment. 
Anyone can say that. That doesn't mean that that's what they are. It usually means that they're either lying or a lunatic. The difference here is that Jesus can back up what he's saying. Look with me to verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, every time that Jesus did some supernatural deed, it was God the Father declaring to the world, this is my son. Listen to him. When Jesus performed a sign, the miracles were so instantaneous, so complete, so marvelous that no one at the time doubted the authenticity of his miracles. They were so public and so impossible to explain away that even Jesus' enemies didn't deny that Jesus' miracles were real. All the Pharisees could say about Jesus' miracles was that they were performed by demons or done on the Sabbath. They could never deny that they occurred. Orthodox Jews today believe in a collection of writings called the Talmud, and it was written not long after Jesus came. They actually write about Jesus in the Talmud, and even there, they don't question his miraculous abilities. They simply describe him as a magician. Jesus' miracles were undeniable, so much so that, remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in chapter 3, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Every sign that Jesus performs in this book is God saying to you and me, this is my son. Believe him. When Jesus multiplied the loaves of bread, he was showing the world that he was the bread that came down from heaven. When Jesus healed the man who was born blind, he was showing the world that he is the light of the world. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he was showing everyone that he is the resurrection and the life. The miracles were never supposed to be an end in of themselves. They were supposed to show us that Jesus' messages were true, and that's why he points to his works. My prayer this morning was that you could satisfy the inner longings of your heart for a place beyond this world, because in John 13 and 14, we found three promises about heaven. We found that heaven is the eternal, infinite home of God's children. Jesus is the only way there, and you can believe Jesus because he is one with the Father. So let me ask you, is your heart troubled this morning? Can you re relate at all to these disciples whose plans are crashing and burning in an instant? Maybe you feel like Peter this morning. Maybe you've tried so hard to please God, but you just end up failing him again and again. Maybe you're like Thomas or Philip and you're struggling with what Jesus is saying here. This is a sweet passage, but it contains some incredibly deep truths. Have you embraced Jesus for who he said he was? Have you embraced Jesus as God, one with the Father? Have you trusted in Jesus to get you to his Father's house? Are you worried you might not make it there at all? Well, I have three pastoral charges for you, three ways you can apply the truths of John 14 to your life and satisfy that inner longing in your soul for a place beyond this world. 
First pastoral charge. Believe in the way. Believe in the way. Jesus can say, believe in God, believe also in me, because he is one with the Father. Jesus can use the title I am for himself because he is the great I am of the Old Testament. Jesus can claim to be the way and the truth and the life because he is truly God. So believe in him. Listen, you may have done a million good deeds. You may have gone to church every Sunday since you were in utero. You may have been baptized in every lake in the Adirondacks. But if you have not entered by the way, you cannot go to the Father. It's only by faith alone in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And listen, I know this is a hard truth for a lot of people in our day. And I hear the complaint often. Why is there only one way? How can God be so narrow-minded? How can Jesus be like this? But listen, we should be on our knees praising God that there is a way. That God in his mercy and love and kindness bent down to to sinners like us who only deserved his destruction. If all we want is justice and fairness, then it's hell for everybody. But God in his grace has satisfied the demands of justice in sending Christ for us. And if you repent of your sin today and trust alone in him, then all your sin will be washed by the blood of the lamb. So believe in the way today. Second pastoral charge unapologetically tell people Jesus is the only way to heaven. Unapologetically tell people that Jesus is the only way to heaven. As Christians, we're a lot like reporters. Our job is not to write the news, it's to tell the news. And we have to be faithful to tell people the truth about what Jesus has said about himself. Look, if Jesus said that there is many ways to heaven... He's just the best way. I'd be happy to tell people that. And I would have a lot more friends if that was what Jesus had said. But that's not what he said. The only hope our friends and family members have for heaven is Jesus. And so we have to be faithful to communicate that. We have to be bold. Now, I'm not saying you run up to people and scream it at their faces. I'm not saying that you have to be a jerk about it or to be arrogant about it. That does happen quite often. But when it comes up and you have the opportunity, humbly point people to Jesus because he is the way to the Father. (coughs) Third pastoral charge. When your heart is troubled, trust in Jesus' promises. When your heart is troubled, trust in Jesus' promises. Heaven is our Father's house. It is our eternal home. It's where we finally belong and we'll never have to leave. It's where Jesus is, and he is the only one who could satisfy the deepest longing of our souls. Listen to what John, the author of this gospel, wrote about heaven in Revelation chapter 21. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, and God prepared like a bride adorned her for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. 
This is what we have to look forward to. And in our Father's house, there are many rooms. And that means that all of the saints of God, from the weakest believer in the world to the strongest believer, will be welcomed in. D.A. Carson once shared this illustration, and I want to share it with you as well. He said, picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen, and Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood and put blood on the lintel? Haven't you done that? Are you all ready and packed to go? You're going to eat the whole Passover meal with your family? Of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary thinking about all the things that have happened recently. You know, the flies and river turning to blood. Pretty awful. And now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed, you know. It's all right for you. You have three sons. I only have one. I love my Charlie. And the angel of death is passing through tonight, you know. I know that God, I know what God says and I put the blood there, but it's pretty scary. And I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer is neither. Because death does not pass over them on the grounds of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the grounds of the blood of the lamb. And as long as our faith is in the one who is the way and the truth and the life, then we will get there, church. Amen? Amen. And on that note, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you've shown us grace and mercy that we don't deserve. Not only do you forgive us our sins, but you bring us with you to your heavenly home. And there we will forever praise you for your goodness towards us. May we be bold as we tell others about Jesus and help us to trust in all of your incredible promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.